to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're going to hear a first-hand account of what life is like under lockdown in Shanghai, China. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ting Chok, researcher and coordinator of the Art Department of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research and a founding member of Dongsheng News. Tings, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again, Sean. Jack, it's always a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. And Tings, uh, you're there in uh, Shanghai, China, a city of over 25 million people that right now is facing one of the worst outbreaks of coronavirus since the onset of the pandemic. Uh, in late March, uh, Ma Chun-Lei, who's the secretary general of Shanghai's government, admitted that the city at that point wasn't really prepared to deal with the surge. And in the time since, Shanghai has embarked on a very ambitious project to connect contain the spread of the virus while also keeping the economy intact. And here in the United States, and I think in the West broadly, we're told a lot about what's happening in Shanghai and in China more generally as it concerns the coronavirus pandemic. But we never really hear from someone who's actually experiencing it. And so I'm curious from your perspective, Tings, I mean, uh, uh, how is a lockdown in Shanghai unfolding up until this point? I mean, how does testing work? Uh, you know, how are people getting some of their basic necessities? How are some of these fundamental things uh, sort of operating uh, from your vantage point at this moment? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, you, you started with saying it's a really a city the size of a country, right? You know, 25 million people. 25 million stories. So I won't say that what I'm seeing and what I'm kind of researching and keeping an eye on is a, a comprehensive view, but definitely something I'm clued into. So I would say there's a couple of aspects that I think important to note that there's a huge amount of sort of infrastructure that's being built up to help um, control the pandemic. Uh, and then there are also a massive amounts of human mobilization that's happening on various fronts. So you asked about testing, and I think that that is uh, central because, you know, China has had a few outbreaks since, you know, Wuhan came out two, uh, two and a half years ago. Um, but this has been by far the largest mass testing experience of China and probably ever in history. So just last week, um, the city decided to t mass test the entire city in a day. 25 million people. And so you just have to imagine the scale of mobilizing that takes place. And in fact, they brought in uh, 38,000 medical professionals that, you know, from 15 different provinces and regions to help in that effort. Um, in addition to testing a variety of, of, of tasks like delivering food and goods. And, and I can talk a bit more about how that's working afterwards. And so, uh, uh, that mass testing happens. And I can share with you a little bit because I just went this morning at eight in the morning. And the last week I've done actually four tests, uh, PCR tests. And usually what happens is someone in my building, a volunteer, uh, who's this lovely elderly woman, uh, knocks on the door to, and lets everyone know, oh, we're, we're going testing now. And usually it's separated community by community to ensure that there's no cross-contamination. And then ours is in a schoolyard nearby. And there's about 20,000 testing sites set up across the country of this kind. And usually takes about five, 10 minutes, you know, socially distanced, line up in a you know community yard. And then, of course, the testing is free. 
and the results come the next day and and it's logged into a, a national system uh, that kind of uh, you know keeps tabs of all the tests and and of that like I mentioned the volunteers but you know there are um, hundreds of thousands of people I would say mobilized that's a mixture of party members um, lots of volunteers um, but also you know the tens of thousands of delivery workers and healthcare workers to kind of keep the city going while it's still in lockdown. Um, and the, the numbers are high. I mean, uh, as of, you know, since March 1st, the last I checked, it was up to a quarter million cases. But I, but the cases are bad, but the, the vaccination rates are quite high, right? In China, it's about 87%. Um, so we're not seeing this um, equating with, you know, rise in death tolls. In fact, that's quite a, just very few cases um, and often linked to people who are actually having difficulties accessing um, health, like hospitals, because of other um, health issues. And that, that's a real problem that the government's trying to address right now. Yeah. And, you know, I've also been seeing some some images and videos of uh, people in line to get tested wearing uh, costumes and, and things like that. So I thought that was fun. And, and yeah, I was hoping you could say more about um, the food delivery aspect of things and how that works out as well. Um, yeah, this is the kind of key thing. It takes up uh, quite a bit of our time every day. <laughs> um, food, I think, is organized and, and medical supplies are organized uh, I think there's two ways. One is through the party mobilization in the grassroots areas. So the key kind of most grassroots level is called the Zhuhui, which is a residential community um, committee. There's about 6,000 in Shanghai. Um, and they're responsible um, for the daily life of communities. So in this moment, they're the ones that really mobilize to make sure that information is getting um, uh, to everyone in the communities, um, doing testing, uh, or at least advising us of when the testing is doing, they're not actually doing the testing themselves, or delivering uh, government uh, food packages. And for us, uh, in my apartment, we got two deliveries last week. Um, one was uh, a pretty big bag of veggies, mostly vegetables and that kind of thing, and some, um, you know, big bag of rice and noodles because, you know, we can't live without noodles. And actually some um, traditional Chinese medicine as well, um, which have been proven to, to be effective with um, mild symptoms. Uh, as well as kind of masks and uh, home antigen t test kits, because um, what Shanghai has been doing is, in addition to the masks and uh, PCR testing, they've also been doing um, uh, home testing. So I've been doing that every day. Um, but I have to say that the food uh, that the government delivers is not, um, it's largely not enough and it's, or it's inconsistent or not, they're not able to deliver it. So it keeps fresh to everyone uh, all the time. So where it comes in is really the massive self-organization that's been happening or what we call Tuan Go. It's like collective buy groups, buying groups, uh, where um, communities have just come together to, um, to, to make bulk purchases of pretty much anything. And, and that's been the lifeline of, for most people. Um, and in fact, I think it's kind of nice to share is that a lot of these, you know, sort of self-elected leaders of these um, usually online groups and, and delivery workers have really become, you know, heroes, the everyday heroes, because they're ensuring that the supplies um, are getting to people. Just the other day, I had a chance to talk with one of the delivery workers, you know, socially distanced, and he, to in order to kind of avoid getting stuck in his 
community that he lives in because, you know, he he's delivering food. And if someone like a neighbor got a case and his community gets shut down, he can't deliver food. So he's been actually living in his van, working, you know, 15 hours a week. I've added him now on my WeChat. He's like a friend now on WeChat is like the social media messaging platform. And it was I mean, amazing. Like he's been working 15 hour days and he was even arguing with his boss when there was a problem with the app of like what we ordered and what was delivered. And he was just like defending us and making sure that we were getting the food. And, and so it's been really impressive to see the kind of informal self-organization, but also at the level of, you know, the party um, organization in the communities. Yeah. And see, this is really what I wanted to sort of hone in on uh, uh, things and what I'm, I'm most interested in really in terms of life under lockdown in Shanghai is this kind of collective grassroots effort that seems to be mobilizing the communities on a number of uh, uh, levels to really help, you know, support each other through this period. I mean, you mentioned um, this concept of uh, a Tuan Go and, and things like this. And, and that just really seems like a, an important aspect of, uh, you know, keeping people afloat and making sure that folks have the things that they need under uh, what can be, I'm sure, difficult conditions of a lockdown. So just from what you've seen, how important is that kind of, you know, culture of, you know, uh, uh, being a good neighbor and cooperation and this sort of grassroots uh, mobilization? How important is all of that to, you know, frankly, supporting people during this lockdown period? I mean, it's been essential. And I, I would say um, that a lot of the communities, including my own, you know, our neighbors didn't know each other previously. Um, but I think it also because I had moved here just a few months ago and it's still relatively new. But, you know, I'll give an example of how how our um community started um, doing these group purchases is um, like on a sunny day, I saw my neighbor on the third floor with her their kid um, kind of, you know, taking him some vitamin D. And I just kind of yelled down to her, hey, can we exchange numbers? And from there on, we started adding, you know, I know that one person or do you know someone from fourth floor? And now we have a group going. And actually just yesterday, we our first order came in. And I'm happy to report that there's essential goods. And then also we got some beer delivered as well. So I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> so we were able to access all kinds of things. I mean, lockdown is boring. It's not a fun time. But I have to say that's also, you know, there's also people who kind of fall through their cracks in the sense of like, these are really relying on people who you know, have cell phones. Most of people obviously have cell phones, but so there's a bit of checking in to make sure, oh, is that like elderly woman who's on the second floor who might not be in the WeChat groups and everything? Does she have food as well? You know, has anyone checked in on her? And I think that kind of stuff is really important because Shanghai is a relatively older city. And that's also one of the reasons why, you know, if this has been a scary moment because a lot of the elders haven't yet been fully vaccinated or haven't gotten their um, uh, booster shots yet. Um, about a quarter uh, of the population are above 60. And so, you know, uh, that whole support has been essential to making sure, you know, that those elders that aren't connected in the neighborhood or maybe aren't living with kids or living alone are, are getting food as well. And, and for us, it's been really essential because sometimes if your orders, you know, we're pretty spoiled in Shanghai because there's a whole kind of you know, delivery services, people are used to like in 30 minutes, you get an order after 
ordered on your phone. So sometimes it might take days to get your orders or maybe orders get canceled. But a lot of times, you know, you just, you know, what I do is write in the group and say, Hey, um, uh, you know, running out of, you know, veggies, does anyone have any? And, you know, someone might leave it by your door or, you know, I don't drink milk and have extra milk. And my you know neighbor has some kids and I left a box of milk for her, you know, that kind of stuff is happening. And it's really essential. Um, it's a lifeline, I think, of, of this lockdown moment. Yeah, I mean, definitely that 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 uh, social solidarity just seems so important. And on on another aspect of things, uh, things uh, you all reported in, in Dongsheng News that um, Shanghai's municipal government has offered twenty two billion dollars in in tax incentives to uh, local businesses. Why do you think this aspect of things is uh, important while folks are on lockdown and can't you know patronize a lot of these places as they maybe normally would? Yeah, I mean, that's an essential part because there's already been some experiences of lockdowns, obviously. So these financial packages were already um, um, earmarked when the lockdown was announced. Um, um, so that includes a series of tax cuts or, you know, rent exemptions or, you know, uh, ensuring that banks are offering low interest loans for businesses. And because there are practices that have been applied also in other cities that have been hit hard or um, other kinds of incentive measures like consumption vouchers um, uh, so that, you know, um, businesses are getting that local um, um, kind of cash circulation. Or in some cases, you know, in Shanghai, they've been a series of you know, green passes as like uh, they're like designated businesses that can can supply food during the uh, pandemic. But I mean, I think it's part of a whole larger series of, of um, financial incentives since the pe- pandemic started two years ago of how to um, inject money because to keep COVID at bay and to keep, you know, COVID zero or zero COVID policy and, and protect lives, it costs a lot, you know? And so we've seen a huge amount of stuff for supporting small, medium businesses, um, and, or stimulating the economy, um, through construction projects. I mean, just this year alone, um, $2.3 trillion has been planned for construction projects of of course, that being a major um, uh, stimulus uh, in this period of recovering from the pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, this brings me to a, a broader question about how the lockdown in Shanghai is connected to China's broader zero COVID policy, which I think has proven itself, frankly, to be uh, really quite efficient and effective at containing the virus. And here in the United States, we continue to be told that um, China's lockdown measures are draconian and repressive. Um, I was looking at a recent piece on CNN that, um, you know, described the lockdowns as, quote, chaotic and uncompromising. Now, all of this this is coming from the U.S. where we're on the precipice of one million COVID deaths. Meanwhile, in China, a country with a far, far larger population, we've seen far, far fewer deaths. And so there's a sustained effort um, in the U.S. and I would say also in the West in general to cast doubt or to uh, uh, stigmatize China's zero COVID policy. And so how do you see the uh, Shanghai lockdown and how it's been operating up until this point sort of connected to the zero COVID policy and, and the reality of how that policy has really impacted um, the pandemic inside China? I mean, I think one of the first things I would say to that is uh, that um, 
we can't confuse the problems that Shanghai is facing and, and they're real problems, you know, um, like you had mentioned in the beginning of the show that um, Shanghai underestimated in some ways the spread of especially of this Omicron BA2 variant, which is way quicker, way faster than any of the variants before and, and, and didn't act quickly enough. In, in fact, you know, the government uh, you know, made its own criticisms, and you know, some officials have also been dismissed for this inadequate handling, etc. But what's happening in Shanghai shouldn't be confused with the whole of zero COVID policy. I mean, zero COVID policy is a national policy, but the implementation has been decentralized into the cities. Mm. Um, and I'll, I'll give an example. You know, Shenzhen, uh, which is another mega city in the south, in my home province, um, has had a very different experience. Um, about a month ago, they, they right after initial cases were found, they just went in and did a one-week lockdown of the city. And essentially, the city has returned back to normal. They acted pretty swiftly. Um, and these are both according to the zero COVID policy, but in some ways, there were some um, mistakes even the government here has admitted to, to making and not acting quick enough. But I think on this larger question of what is draconian, what is repressive, Yes, it's, I mean, we have to remember why why zero COVID in the first place. Like, what motivates a policy like that? It, you can say it's extreme or something, but is it the market? You know, clearly no capitalist country or in the West would shut down a financial capital like Shanghai for two weeks because it's profitable. You know, it's and it's I don't know. I wouldn't believe in the idea that like maybe like the you know, government here is just evil and it's just doing it for the sake of being repressive. No, I mean, it, it's to save lives, you know, it's to save lives. Um, and I, I went to do a little looking right before our show is that, you know, while the media has been, you know, Western mainstream media has been really running to condemn China's repressive measures. Um, I found out that in a week, 3,500 people had died in the U.S. alone. These are recorded deaths. 3,500 people are still dying a week in the U.S. And this is also in other major Western countries, like in Germany. It's almost 2,000 in the last week. I mean, I think in the capitalist world, death is just so normalized that the idea of protecting lives at these, you know, you know, taking huge measures to do so is seen as excessive or brutal or like a denial of human rights. I mean, to me, it's, there's been six million deaths recorded in, in the world. Uh, I, I mean, I can't think of a larger crime against human rights than something like that, you know. So anyways, if, if China didn't adopt a zero COVID policy, we'd be seeing millions more deaths. I mean, I don't even want to imagine if it took a policy like the U.S., um, that apparently isn't draconian, um, what that would look like for the world. And and this policy, of course, I mean, it's not going to be for forever. I mean, none of none of us hope for that. But it's a process of, you know, China buying its time, even at huge economic costs like we talked about, so that, you know, vaccines can continue to improve. You know, China is now, you know, testing mRNA vaccines, um, you know, making sure all the elders and those at risk um, are fully vaccinated and more and, and a variety of things to make sure it's not a forever policy. But at this moment, it's still considered, and I support it, to, 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 to avoid those deaths. You know, um, 3,500 deaths a week in the U.S. is way too many. <laughs> It's definitely way too many. And I mean, I can't help but think about 
the one so-called lockdown that we had here in the U.S., which wasn't even really a lockdown. And we certainly didn't receive uh, any of the kind of support that we, you know, see uh, in China. And also that that culture of collectivity that we're talking about, that sort of level of social solidarity. Um, we saw it in some ways with like mutual aid groups. But, you know, in terms of the overall, it just uh, wasn't really present, which I think, uh, you know, probably contributes some to, to the overall picture. But we thank you so much Tings for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.